Morning, everybody. I just want you all to notice that my shirt is untucked. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I might get a reprimand from Pastor Ray after, uh, but I just thought I would do it for you. Uh, I am a regular human being after all, and I don't always tuck my shirt in. But uh, for those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here. We're working our way through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, big message, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Today, we actually we come to the last passage in Matthew chapter 5, which means we're over halfway. Matthew chapter 5 is the, is the biggest chunk. And so uh, let's just read that, and, uh, and we'll get into this. Let's just get straight out of here. All right, Matthew chapter 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And uh, last year, I, I preached a message in a series on uh, true spirituality. I actually preached on this passage, a message about loving your enemies as yourself. Last week, we talked about turn the other cheek, which kind of bleeds a little bit into this passage. And so I want to do something a little different today than I've been doing in the Sermon on the Mount series so far. I actually want to start at the end of this passage and start at the end and work my way back to the beginning because every time I've ever touched this passage before, I've never been able to make it to the end. I've never been able to talk about the last verse here. And so we're going to start uh, uh, at the back with, uh, with uh, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I'm calling this message, Be Perfect. Are you encouraged? <laughs> let's pray and let's get into this. Lord Jesus, your words are life to us. You are life. You are the fountain of life. You are the one who listens to our prayers and loves to answer our prayers. You are the one who is gracious to us. You are the one who gives us joy. You are the one who hears our cries for our families. You are the one who touches our marriages. You are the one who makes life worth living, even though we sometimes forget that. And Jesus, I just pray today as I preach this message, I just want us to be more in love with you and more encouraged in you and more wanting to follow you in our families than we were when we came in. In your name we pray, amen. You, therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, let's first of all just remind ourselves a little bit of what's happening here on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you'll recall uh, Jesus, uh, beginning of chapter 5, when he, uh, goes out, he goes up on a mountain to preach this message. He's preaching, there's crowds crowds, huge crowds of, of new followers. He's just started his ministry, and there's huge crowds of new followers that are following him because he's been doing miracles and stuff. And so he goes up on this mountain, and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's a discipleship message, okay? It's a, it's a manifesto, okay? Following me, he says, is not just coming and getting some miracles. It's not just coming and seeing some cool signs and wonders. He says, following me is about a lifestyle, okay? This is about discipleship. Following me comes with, it's a way of life, okay? And so you'll remember back uh, second week in this, in this message, in his intro to the Sermon on the Mount, he casts this big vision of what his purpose is for us, his followers. He, he speaks to these masses and he says, this is my purpose for you. This, on earth, this is what I want you to be. He says, and he, ca he casts this huge vision. He says, I want you to be salt and light. I want you to be salt and light, Okay? And of course, Jesus being the master teacher that he is, uh, you know, he uses these amazing metaphors, salt and light, it just sticks in your head. I mean, everybody knows we're supposed to be salt and light. Our purpose on the earth is to be salt and light. Now, the problem is, for many Christians today, if you ask them, what does it mean? Because any Christian will tell you, oh yeah, we're, you know, we're supposed to be salt and light, because we all remember it's such a good metaphor, it just sticks with you. Everybody knows we're supposed to be salt and light. Great message, great intro, great vision. The problem is, for many Christians today, if you ask them, what does it mean? Okay, what does that mean to be salt and light? 
What does that mean that the church, that, G, that Christians, that people who follow Jesus are supposed to be salt and light on the earth? And we talked about this in a whole message there in, in the second week. But the fact of the matter is most Christians today, if you ask them, what does it mean to be salt and light? They're going to give you an answer based out of their feelings. Okay, they're going to give you an answer based out of their feelings, kind of what the culture out there says. And many Christians say, if you ask them, what does it mean for the church to be salt and light in the world? What does it mean for the church to be a light to the world? What does it mean for Christians to be a light to the world? Many Christians today will give you an answer that goes with their feelings, goes with the culture, somewhere along the lines of being salt and light means, you know, social justice, giving them to the poor, doing good works, generosity, you know, feeding people, all that sort of stuff. Now, first of all, Amen. Okay, social justice, hugely important. Giving to the poor, hugely important. I can show you many passages in Scripture. The Bible is very clear that a big part of our Christian duty is certainly we need to love the poor, take care of the poor, social justice. We're huge at that here, into that here at Southland. I mean, that's our whole Uganda thing. We've put in how much time and energy and money into that mission there and all the orphans and, you know, self-sustaining farm and Four Winds housing here in the community and all the food we give away and, and different things and, and helping immigrant families. Like, there's, we're huge into that, okay? Social justice is awesome. I love taking care of the poor. It's a big part of the Christian calling. But the thing I want you to understand and realize is this. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus cast the vision, he says, I want you to be salt and light. He doesn't just throw out that analogy and then say, now you guys figure out what that means. He casts this vision at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I want you to be salt and light. Here's the big vision. Everybody goes, woohoo, we want to be salt and light. And then in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he actually spells out what that looks like. Okay, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is the details. Here's what it looks like. This is what it means to be salt and light. And the thing I want you to notice, as important as social justice is, as important as feeding the poor is, and you can find many scriptures about it, it is there, it's important. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, I want you to be salt and light, now he goes and spells it out in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He has not yet talked about social justice or giving to the poor. In fact, we're coming to the end. At the end of chapter 5 now, the style of the Sermon on the Mount changes a little bit now when we move on into chapter 6. But what we've seen for the last how many weeks is he's got this whole formula. And over and over and over again, he says, you have heard that it was said. So he starts the message, you are salt and light in the earth. Now let me spell out what that means. And now he's, we've gone through a whole bunch of weeks of, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said. And he's been preaching on Old Testament commandments. Now that's not cool in modern day Christian culture. You ask someone, what does it mean to be salt and light? Oh, it's social justice given to the poor. That's like the popular answer. But when you actually look at the Sermon on the Mount, what being salt and light is, is obeying the Old Testament commands and living a righteous, holy life. Ooh, that's not as cool. But that's what Jesus defines salt and light is. Salt and light is following God's commands. Salt and light is, he talks about divorce. Culture says, if you're not happy in your marriage, life is all about self-fulfillment and all that, just get out of your marriage vows. Jesus says, you can be given to the poor all you want, but if all the marriages are breaking apart in the church, you're not advancing my kingdom, that's not salt and light. He talks about sexual purity. Purity from lust. He talks about keeping your promises even when it hurts. Talks about turning the other cheek when someone does evil to you. And we've looked at all those as we've been working through this series. But it's a fiery message about righteousness and obedience to the commands of God and holiness. That's what it means to be salt and light. Okay? Yes, we have to love the world. Yes, we have to do social justice. But it's not a soft, fuzzy, feel-good love. It's a love that is tempered with a steel of holiness. It's a, it's a glorious, hot, holy, pure, and righteous love that follows God's commands and does right. Okay? Super huge. So, now, bookending. So it starts with your salt and light. You're supposed to be salt and light on the, earth, on the earth. You're supposed to be a light to the world. You're supposed to be a salt and a preservative. Now he goes through all these Old Testament commands and he talks about righteous living, holy living, pure living. And now he bookends this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. He bookends it with, it starts with salt and light. It's all filled in with righteousness. He books it, bookends it with you are supposed to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. This is all part of salt and light. 
Part of being salt and light is it's following his commands. It's being perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. Now, if you have any exposure to the Old Testament, if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize that Jesus is alluding to something that God commanded the Israelites over and over again in the Old Testament. He's not doing it word for word, but it's, it's a parallel. When he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's referring back to the Old Testament and a command that was repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Let me show you a couple of these. Leviticus 11, verse 44, he says this, God says this to the Israelites, For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy for I am holy. Okay, this is a big part of God's call to the Israelite nation. He doesn't say, be nice like I am nice. Lots of churches today think that the call of Christians is to be nice so people will like us. And yes, we need to be loving, but the call when God spoke to the Israelites, he didn't say, be nice because I am nice so all the nations will like you. He said, be holy as I am holy. This is how you are a light to the world. Be holy as I am holy. Okay? And this is, Jesus is paralleling this in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, this is throughout Scripture, Leviticus 19, 1-2, says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, because he wants the whole nation to hear this. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is holy, therefore he says, you are my representatives on the earth. If you're going to represent me, you also must be holy. Okay? And then Peter, you know, repeats. This is a theme right throughout Scripture. It's through the Old Testament. God comes in the flesh in Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He repeats it there. Be perfect as, I, as, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then Peter, near the end of the New Testament, repeats it again to the church. He says this in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. As obedient children... Uh, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And there he's quoting from Leviticus. Okay, so this is a, this is a, a, a theme throughout Scripture. God's called to his people. Start with the Israelites, then Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount, then Peter to the church at the end of the New Testament. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, of course, many Christians, I mean, you look at this, what do we do with that, right? Well, many Christians don't, I mean, most of us just ignore this passage. Isn't that true? We don't know what to do with that. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's impossible. That's not encouraging, okay? And when I first said before I prayed, you know, I'm calling this message be perfect. That's not encouraging for most of us. Be holy as I am holy? That's not possible. We don't even know what to do with these passages. So I think, you know, a, a big chunk of Christians just ignore it. We don't even look at this verse. We don't know what to do with it. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. No idea what to do with that. It's not possible. We're not perfect. Move on. Ignore it. Now, another group of Christians, they do all kinds of, um, you know, hermeneutical stunts and, and, and try and make the verse say something uh, different that's more palatable to our ears you know so when jesus said be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect he's not really telling us to be perfect like his father in heaven is perfect he's actually just telling us something that's so impossible we'll give up and then we won't try and we'll just trust in him you know what if jesus didn't want you to obey this he would have told you that if he just wanted you to give up he would have told you that okay what kind of a god says to, to the israelites be holy as i am holy what kind of a god gives a command that they can't even follow Okay, what, what kind of a dad would I be? You know, Boaz, my, our, our youngest now, he's going to be a year in just a couple of weeks. And like, what kind of a dad would I be if I went home today and told him, Boaz, you need to tidy up your room right now? Okay? Now, some of you don't maybe have kids, you don't realize a one-year-old kid actually can't do that. Maybe you just write that down, future <laughs> reference. Okay, what, uh, he has no concept. He, I mean, when he hears me talk, this is what he hears. Blah, 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 blah. And he just grins, ah, daddy likes me. <laughs> He has no ability. He has no understanding to tidy up his room. What kind of a dad would I be if I gave him a command he couldn't follow? That'd be a horrible dad. What kind of a dad would I be if I then turned around and punished him for not obeying a command he couldn't follow? I'd be a horrible dad. Okay? When God said to the Israelites, be holy as I'm holy, he wasn't giving them a command they can't follow. What kind of a God would he be if he gave a command they can't follow? Oh, they're not holy. Now wrath. What kind of a God would he be? Jesus says, be perfect your Father in heaven is perfect if he doesn't expect us to do something about it. You say, but, but we can't be perfect. It's impossible. 
Don't you think Peter knew that when he wrote, Be holy as I am holy in 1 Peter 1? I mean, this is the guy who denied Jesus three times. Okay, this is the guy who Jesus said to him at one point, Get behind me, Satan. Like, he knows what it is to make mistakes. And yet he writes, Be holy as I am holy. You say, well, what are we supposed to do with this? What do you mean this is a doable command, be holy? What do you mean this is a doable command, be perfect? What, what, are, you, what are you saying? Because clearly we are not perfect. Well, thing you need to understand is we need to understand what the word holy means. Certainly when the word holy is applied to God, it certainly has the connotation of, of absolute perfection in the sense of never makes a mistake, never an impure thought, has never fallen in sin. Never. He's totally pure. Certainly when you apply holy to God, it certainly in- includes that, that white-hot, holy, purity, righteous, never makes a mistake, all that sort of stuff. But you know, in the Old Testament, when God called the Israelites to be holy, the connotation of the word was not, you are never allowed to make a mistake. That was not the connotation at all. The word holy in the Old Testament has a connotation, the primary meaning is set apart, devoted to. That's what it means. So throughout the Old Testament, when you read, you know, like the utensils in the temple and the tabernacle were called holy. Why were they called holy? Because they were set apart for God. They weren't used for everyday use. They were devoted to God. Okay? When the people were called to be holy, God was not saying to them, you're never allowed to make a mistake. And we know that because he gave them a whole sacrificial system. This is what you do when you make a mistake. So when God said to the Israelites, be holy as I am holy, and at the same time gave them a sacrificial system for when they make a mistake, he wasn't telling them you're never allowed to make a mistake or you're out. When he said, be holy as I am holy, he was calling them to come out. Come out from the nations and don't live the way they live. You have to live by my ways. Come out from them, be set apart to me to serve me, not their gods. You're going to serve me. You're going to be devoted to me. Your life is for me, not these other gods, not yourself. It means set apart, okay? And so if you choose to devote your life to God, now, of course, once you've made that choice, I'm devoting my whole life to God, once you're in that life, you're going to make mistakes, and so he gave them a sacrificial system. But the call, be holy as I'm holy, does not mean you can't make a mistake. It means devote yourself to me. Come and live by my ways. Follow me. That's what it means. And it's the same thing it means. And then Jesus is alluding to that whole command where he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not saying be perfect in the sense of you are never allowed to make a mistake or you're out. That is not Jesus' heart to us. He loves to forgive us. He's a, I mean, I don't get all over my kids when they make a mistake every time. I'm a human dad, and I love them. I love to forgive them. I love to have grace for them. How much more does our Heavenly Father want to have grace for us? When he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, he's not using the word perfect in a sense of you are never allowed to make a mistake or you're out. He's saying you are to live by my Father's perfect ways. Be separate from the ways of the world and the way the world does things, and you need to come and you need to live by my standards and my ways and my rules. Think about it this way. I wrestled with this this week, trying to come up with an analogy that would help you guys to understand what it means to live by God's perfect ways, but that doesn't mean you don't make a mistake. And, and kind of at the, at the risk of be, trivializing it a bit, I just want to use, for a moment, just bear with me for this analogy, okay? I want you to think of holiness as a game. Now, of course, again, I don't want to trivialize holiness. Holiness is not a game. But think about it as a game or a sport for a few minutes, will you? Okay, imagine... You know, if you, you know, you've got different games, you've got different sports you can play, right? And each sport operates by a totally different set of rules or ways. I mean, whether it be baseball or hockey or football or basketball, each sport has its own way of doing things. Each sport has different goals. Each sport has different uh, equipment. Each sport has different rules. They're totally different. If you pick baseball over football or basketball over hockey, you are playing something radically different. Your, your motive and, you know, what you're trying to do in the game is different. How you're trying to do it is different. And, and what the rules that you're playing by completely different. In fact, if you're flipping through the channels, let's say, and you're looking for a football game, and you come across, while you're flipping through the football game, you come across a hockey game or a basketball game or a soccer game or something, you don't have to stop and watch for a few minutes to figure out which sport they're playing, do you? You have to stop and go, you know, it's on a hockey game and figure out, is this football? I can't quite decide yet. You know, you, you go by a baseball game. Is that football? I'm not, no. You know instantly, less than a second, you don't even have to stop flicking. You know in a moment because the way you play that game, the, the heart of the game, the style of the game, the rules of the game are so different that you immediately know this is one game, this is another game. Okay? So, 
let's just keep this analogy going for just a little bit here, okay? Let's say a person chooses to play football. So, I mean, you look at the, the different sports. You, you have to make a choice. Which game am I going to play? Okay? So now you make the decision. You decide, okay, I'm going to play this game, okay? Now let's say a person chooses to play football, so now they pick up football. Now the, now the fact that they've decided to play football means their experience of playing is going to be totally different than if they had picked hockey or basketball. It's going to be a totally different experience, totally different way of living and way of doing things, okay? Now, once he's made that decision, however, is he never allowed to make a mistake within that game? Well, of course he's allowed to make a mistake. I mean, you watch a football game, they make lots of mistakes every single game. Okay, for example, a person is playing defensive line in a football game. If he starts running after the quarterback by accident before the quarterback has snapped the ball, it's called offside. He gets a penalty. That's a mistake. But now, what kind of a mistake has he just made, right? Has he made a mistake of he hasn't gone to the sideline, grabbed a bat, and tried to play baseball with the football? That would be chaos, right? He hasn't tried to dribble the ball down the field with his feet trying to play soccer, you, you'd have to kick him out of the game. You're no longer a football player. You're playing a different game. Do you see how there's different kinds of mistakes? There's a mistake of, I don't want to play this game anymore, or I want to change the rules of this game. And then there's a mistake of, I'm just, I'm, I, I like the rules of this game. I like this game. I'm, do, I'm committed to this game, and I just made a mistake while playing it. Do you see how there's a difference there? An offensive line player, you know, moves before, before the quarterback snaps the ball, and depending on which football you're, you're watching, whether it be minor league or the, or the real thing, it's a legal procedure or false, or false start, right? And uh, you guys totally missed that, that, that joke, and uh, so I won't use it again. Um, but uh, but it, it's just a penalty. You just keep going, right? Okay? So let's talk about holiness for just a moment, okay? There's two ways of, there's two games, kind of, again, at the risk of trivializing it. There's two games that we can choose between. One is the world's game and the world's ways. And that's a game. You can live your life that way. It's got a whole set of values. It's got a whole set of goals. And one is God's game. And it's totally different ways, totally different rules, totally different goals, totally different method. They're two totally, radically different ways of living. Okay? And one we could call holiness. Okay? The world's ways, there's many ways to play the game of the world. But the basic gist is you're living for yourself. You're living for yourself either in a pursuit of money, in a pursuit of materialism, in the pursuit of power, or even in the pursuit of good things, but good things in selfish ways. You might just be pursuing family and relationships in a selfish way that doesn't put God first. Whatever it is, the, the world's game is it's about you. It's about your pleasure. It's about your whatever, your name, your stuff. God says, I want you to be holy. I want you to come out of that game. I want you to be set apart to me, my game. This game is totally different. It's got a different feel, a different look, different rules. In this game, the goal is you submit every area of your life to God, to me. In business, you're not growing the business because you just want to have a big name and lots of money. Yeah, you might be growing it. You might be making lots of money, and that's great, using it for the kingdom. But in this game, your goals are totally different. Your goal is... Everything in my business, everything in my finances, everything in my family is for Jesus, and I'm submitting it all to him, and I don't make decisions just based on what's good for me and what's big for me and what makes me. That's what that game is. This game is what advances Christ's kingdom. It's a totally different game, totally different, different goals, and the rules in this game are the commandments of Scripture. It is the commandments of Scripture. So every person has a choice. Which game am I joining? Am I joining the world's game or am I joining God's game? I'm going to live my, my life for him. Again, I, I don't want to trivialize things. It's not a game. But am I joining God's ways? His ways are perfect. His rules are perfect. The aims of this lifestyle are perfect. But once I choose this perfect game, it's perfect in terms of who designed it and what it's for and what it's accomplishing. But once I join this game, do I have to be is it that I'm never allowed to make a mistake when I'm in this game? 
That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Just like the football player who is committed to football and the rules of football and the goals of football, but in the midst of playing that game, he might get an offside. He might get a pass interference. And he takes his penalty and he keeps going. In the same way, when I make the choice that I'm coming apart from the world's game and I'm going to enter into God's ways, I am a human being. And I could show you many scriptures that the Bible says you will sin and you will mess up. And what you do then is you just confess it to Jesus and repent. And he gladly he gladly uh, he cleanses you right there. You can do it 100 times in a day. If you're playing his game, he says, I'm glad to forgive you. I'm glad to wash you whiter than snow. But recall that there are two kinds of mistakes. There's the mistake of I'm a football player and I just had an offside or I had a pass interference or I had a false start or whatever it is, but I'm still trying to play football. I just made a mistake of playing football, but I'm not trying to change the rules. I'm not trying to play a different game. And then there's the mistake of, I'm a football player, and the football player goes and grabs a baseball bat, and he's trying to swat the football out of the air and play baseball, and now it's, you, that, it's a different game entirely. It's the same with choosing God's ways. You choose God's ways, God is infinitely gracious to you as you make your mistakes in his ways. You are going to fall, so long as your goal is to submit to him and follow him and play by his rules, not the world's rules. But now, this is the problem, carnal Christians, is what people want to do is they want to play this game while they're wearing this uniform. And that's a totally different thing, isn't it? Imagine a, a, a person says, I'm going to play football, and he puts on the uniform of a football player, and then he goes to the ball diamond and starts playing baseball. Okay, first of all, that would be weird, okay? And all the other players on the team would know that that's weird, okay? But now you go to the guy and you say, are you a football player or a baseball player? And he says, well, look at the uniform. Obviously, I'm a football player. I'm wearing a football uniform. And the question is, is it wearing the uniform that makes, of a football player that makes you a football player, or is it playing football that makes you a football player? Is it wearing the uniform of a football player that makes you a football player, or is it playing football that makes you a football player? And this is the problem with the carnal Christian, the worldly Christian. This is a person who you ask them, are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. I prayed a little prayer once in my life, and I go to church every week. Well then, but how is it that you are playing by the world's rules and the world's game and the world's goals all the rest of the week? Is it wearing a cross that makes you a Christian or is it carrying your cross that makes you a Christian? And so holiness, when Jesus says, I'm calling you to be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect, just like when God called the Israelites, be holy as I'm holy, he wasn't telling them you're never allowed to make a mistake. What he was telling them is you are to be set apart. You are to come out of this game and you are to play this one. You can make all kinds of mistakes, of well-meaning mistakes in this one, so long as you're coming after me. So long as this is your desire. So long as, and of course, none of us is even close to there. None of us is 100% devoted every part of our life to God. But this is the desire. This is where you're going. You're trying to follow him. Does that make sense? Come out and be separate. Be set apart. Be devoted to God. And this requires us living by a totally different standard. And this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He said the Sermon on the Mount spells out these, this way. What does God's way look like compared to the world's way? The world says, just get out. I mean, the world's way is, it's all about your personal fulfillment and happiness, so get out of a tough marriage. Break your promises if it's, you know, in business or whatever. You can break your promise if you can get away with it, or if it's going to make you a bit of uh, money or whatever. And Jesus spells it in the sermon, he says, no, 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 no. When you come out and you're set, set apart to God, you're living by his perfect ways, it means you keep your marriage vows. It means that you keep your promises even when it hurts. It means sexual purity. It means reconciliation. It means turning the other cheek. This game looks totally different than that game. You can tell right away. And just like the baseball players think it's a little weird when a football player wants to play their game, the people in the world can see right away when a person wears the Christian uniform and they've got the cross on the side of their head, but they're playing their game. It looks weird to them too. And so Jesus, we even look, if we go to the two verses previous to this one, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, we look at verses 46 and 47, you're going to see Jesus doing this. He's contrasting God's ways, God's perfect ways, with the world's ways, he says this, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. He says to his followers, 
He's, he's mocking the idea. He's scoffing at the idea that living up to the world's ways or the world's rules or the world's standards, he laughs at the idea that that means anything for his kingdom. He says, you think it's good to do that? Even they do that in their game. You, you, you think you're a big deal if you do this? That they even do that in their game. I'm not calling you to play their game. I'm calling you to come out of that game and live by the Father's perfect ways. Yeah, you're going to mess up and fall lots, but I'm calling you to play this game. I'm calling you to live perfect as the Father is perfect by His perfect ways and His perfect laws and His perfect rules. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now I want to spend the rest of this message looking at one of the biggest enemies. It may be the number one enemy. It may just be one or, you know, one of the top ones. I don't know, but I want to tell you what I think is one of the number one enemies of the be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. What is the number one enemy or one of the number one enemies of living by the Father's higher ways as opposed to the world's lower ways? See, where the analogy breaks down a bit is when you're picking between a sport, whether it be basketball or hockey or baseball or football, once you've made the choice, it's easy. Like once you start playing football, you know, you're in the middle of a game. You're not all of a sudden pulling out the baseball and trying to play baseball. It's once you've chosen, you've chosen. But it, when you're choosing between the world and God, it's not that way. You, you actually have to make the choice to go by God's ways and to live by his rules and to live by his perfect ways. You have to make that choice over and over and over again every day. And you can make this choice once and a short time later be totally over there with your football uniform on playing a totally different game. And so the challenge is, the challenge with sports is you just make the choice and then you play it. The challenge with God's ways is how do I keep, after I've chosen to devote myself to God's ways, to the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, to his perfect ways, not the world's lower ways, once I've made that choice, how do I keep playing in that way? How do I keep walking in his higher ways? Because naturally, my sinful self always wants to pull me down. My natural inclination, just like gravity wants to pull things down, my natural inclination is, is to always pull me down into the world's ways. So how do I keep walking the higher ways? Well, let me tell you what I believe is one of the biggest enemies that keeps us from keeping on, that keeps us walking the higher, from walking the higher ways rather than the lower ways, and it is the fact that our minds are inundated with the ways of our culture rather than in the ways of God. How can you walk by God's higher perfect standards when your mind is consumed with the world's lower standards? How can you walk by the Father's eternal, wonderful, perfect values when your mind is consumed with the world's values? See, what you look at and focus on, what you think about, what you look at has a huge impact on how you're going to live. Huge impact. Jesus says, I'm calling you to live by the Father's sense. It's way up high. But how can I live on that high road if I'm always, my whole mind is spent looking at stuff on the low road? How do I live up there? Let me share with you a couple of examples. Maybe, maybe a little trivial, but just to help you see this. What I look at really influences how I live. Uh, Ten years ago, I took up uh, uh, running. I was uh, out praying one morning at, at Abe's Hill. I had an older guy, white hair. He went jogging past me. I thought to myself, I wonder if I can do that. And so I had my jeans and sweater on because I was just out for a prayer walk. I, I ran a little bit, and I was like totally gassed out of wind. I'm like, I'm 26 years old, and I'm, this is horrible. Like, I'm, what am I going to be when I'm 40? So I just took, right there, I took up running, and I just haven't stopped. I've been going for 10 years, okay? Now, I'm a hobby runner, okay? Like, I run five times a week. I don't run seven days a week. I run five times a week. I run five or six miles a day. It takes me, you know, 30, 35, 40 minutes, depending on the day what I'm doing. It's, it's just a thing I do. It makes me healthy. It, I have more energy. It's all that sort of stuff, okay? Now, a couple years after I started running, though, someone in the church, very nice, actually totally awesome, because they, uh, they knew I'd just taken up running. They got me this subscription to a running magazine, and, uh, and it was awesome. Like I, so I started reading this magazine uh, for a year, and it totally gave me these awesome tips for training and different things to, you know, about injuries and, and various ways to just improve and, and run better and all sorts of stuff. It was great. But you know what began to happen? You start to read this magazine. I go in 
to running with this idea that, hey, five times a week is better than no time of the week, okay? 25 or 30 miles a week, I feel really healthy and in shape. Now I start reading this magazine, okay, every couple of weeks or however many times it came or every month or whatever, and this magazine is filled with stories of people who are running 100 miles a week and 150 miles a week, and they're running really, really fast for long distances. Now I'm learning some good things from it. It's not bad to read those magazines. It's not bad to run fast or run long, but... I started out happy with five times a week, 30 or 35 minutes a day, and suddenly, but it's, and it's not conscious. It's not like at any point you also go, wow, I was useless in the past. I'm changing over to this. No, no, it's a subconscious pull. What you're looking at, what you're thinking about is pulling you. It's pulling your desires. It's pulling your values. And you just find that over time, next thing you know, you're less and less satisfied with what you were doing before. You're less and less satisfied with how fast you were going. You're less and less satisfied with how, how far you were running. You're less and less satisfied with how, how much you're running. And slowly but surely, all of a sudden, you're not running five times a week. You're running six times a week. And then you're you're sneaking in seven days a week, and next thing you know, you're cutting into your devos five minutes, ten minutes, because you, you want to run a bit longer, and you want to run a bit farther. And next thing you know, this running thing, which is totally a wonderful, healthy habit, can help you with your health, all of a sudden it's taking up a bigger and bigger and bigger portion of your life. Why? And it's just a slow, you're just slowly being pulled into this, until the next thing you know, it's actually becoming kind of an idol. Well, God in his graciousness, what does he do next? He injures you. Okay? He gives you a, he touches your hip and you have a hip injury and you know for sure now that this thing has become an idol when you're trying to run even with the hip injury and you're starting off every morning, early in the morning, you're trying to run, you're limping along for two miles before you can even get going. And finally he says, I'm not going to let you get better and you get worse and worse and finally you have to stop running for two weeks. And then in the quietness, he says, I didn't call you to be a professional runner. Oh, that's right. It's fine for those other people. It's fine. It's not about legalism. It's fine. I called them. They're faster. I called them to do that. They bring glory to me when they do that. They bring glory to me when they run fast, when they run long. But I called you to be a dad and a pastor. That's your main job. Oh, oh that's a weight off my shoulders. And so I had to stop reading the magazine. It was a great magazine while I got it. I learned some stuff. It was great. It helped me a little bit. And then I just had to stop reading that. I just had to go back to being content with, you know, 30, 35 minutes a day. That's great. But what you fill your mind with, pull, it's pulling you. It's shaping your values. It's shaping your desires. Suddenly what you were content with before, you start filling your mind with something. All of a sudden you're not content with what you were, with what you were content with before, right? I'm going to think of another analogy, just a quick one. Uh, we went to, LaDon and I, first year of marriage, we went to Korea, spent a year there, Seoul, Korea, 15 plus million people, packed into a tiny little city, much smaller than Winnipeg in terms of square area. And so it's just jammed there. There's no yards. People don't have houses. Everybody lives in, in apartments, and you, and you buy an apartment. And so you can be even well off. You can be a wealthy person in Seoul, but you don't have space because there isn't space. You might have all the toys and all the nice stuff, and you live in a small apartment. That's just how it is. So we lived there for a year. We had a blast. We came back. We moved into one of those apartments there along Mackenzie on the way west going out of town, and those places are tiny. They're, I don't know, what are they, 600 feet? They're, they're tiny, 600 square feet maybe. Um, they're small, okay, very small. So small that if someone was sitting at the kitchen table, they'd have to, like, I, they'd have, it would have to be me because it'd have to be someone really skinny. You had to pull all the way in for someone to get between you and, and the fridge behind you, and that was the width of the kitchen, okay? They're tiny. And, but you know what? We came back after being a year in Seoul. It's a mansion! <laughs> wow, 600 square feet. This place is huge. Why would we ever need to move? This is amazing, okay? We can just, and, and this is great. And then we were here for two, three months, and all of a sudden, how did this place get smaller? We haven't had kids. We haven't got bigger. And yet somehow our place shrunk. It was huge two months ago. It's the same place. It's, it's, it's small now. Why? Because everybody around us has more. Is it bad to have a bigger house? Not at all. But what you're seeing, what your mind is filled with, changes your, your reference point. And suddenly what you were happy with before, yeah, what you're looking at all the time is changing you. It's shaping your values. You know, we had our fourth kid last year, and right away the first question a bunch of people asked us is, when are you moving? Well, why would we move? Well, your kids are going to have to share bedrooms. Oh, no. <laughs> what might happen if our kids actually had to share bedrooms? It's not bad, but me and the own just live. It's not bad. Again, it's not bad to have a bigger house. It's not bad to have 
a separate bedroom for each of your kids. I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying it's just where our culture is. It just Our culture tells us this is what you need, this is what you have to have, and that's what we see all the time, and that's just where we go. And so what you're filling your mind with all the time, what you're seeing, what you're hearing about, shapes you. It shapes your desires. It shapes your goals. It shapes all of that. And the problem is that the pull of our culture today is stronger than it's ever been because of the oversaturation of media in our lives. The oversaturation of media today is causing a phenomenon that is making us look at the culture more than we've ever looked at it before. And Jesus calls us to live by these standards, but our minds are so drowned and swamped in images and talking and everything that is this culture. You can't live in these ways if you're looking at these ways all the time. I'm reading a book. James Emery White, uh, Church and Age of, of uh, Crisis. Excellent book. I've been reading it the last couple weeks. And this last week, he, had four, he has four chapters in there on the effect of media on our brains and on our lives today. And just, it, you know, statistics, it just it makes your hair stand on end. You have to go to God immediately after reading and say, Lord, is there any hope for us whatsoever? But he, he talked about some statistics. First of all, he talked about, uh, they've, they've done tons of research. The average child between the age of 18, 8 and 18 today, the average child between the age of 8 and 18 in North America, the average child is exposed to seven hours of media a day. Some kind of electronic device, whether it be social, media, internet, TV, movies, video games, whatever it is, the average child in North America, seven hours a day, electronic devices, media input. You say, oh, phew, that's not my kids. My kids are only two hours. My point is, how much time do you actually have with them as a parent? Seven hours a day, two hours a day, three hours a day, whatever the number is. Who's raising your kids? You have what? You do take stock of your life. How much time? Do you have 15 minutes of connection with that kid and that kid and that kid? Do you have 30 minutes? Seven hours with the culture, 30 minutes with you, 15 minutes with you? By default today, many parents, by default, are just allowing the media and the culture to raise their kids by default, and they think, well, I'm the parent because I'm the one that provides for them, but actually they're far more influenced, far more influenced by the culture because they're with it hours and hours every day than they are by you, who's too busy. Seven hours a day, and it's not just the kids. It's the adults. They've, they've done research now and many jobs now, um, People are at work during their work day. During their work day, 40% of their time is spent emailing, texting, social media, that kind of stuff. That's at work. Never mind what they do at home. Hours and hours and hours. And it's not that it's bad. You say, but I'm not watching anything bad. I'm not doing anything bad. Well, that's great. It's good that you're not looking at anything bad when you're in those hours and hours of media every day. But the point is, if you're spending hours and hours and hours there, it's shaping you. It's actually, it's pulling you. It's shaping your values. It's shaping your desires. It's shaping what you're content with and not content with. It's shaping what kind of house you think you must have. It's shaping what kind of body you think you must have. It's shaping what kind of everything that you think about your life. It's shaping it. You might not be looking at porn, but you're spending hours looking at this game. And Jesus says, I want you to come out from that game. I want you to live a separate life. I want you to live by this one. Totally different rules, totally different way of playing, totally different heart in playing it, but you can't play this game properly when your eyes are completely focused on that one. Again, this is not about legalism. This is not about, you can never watch a movie or anything. I mean, we, every Sunday night, uh, you know, we, uh, our family, LaDonna and I and the kids, we, we have movie night every, every Sunday night. Half the time it's Little House on the Prairie. Now, don't all beat down the door trying to come to our place for a Sunday night now, but... Uh, <laughs> And we, but we'll go to the video store and rent a movie. It's not that you never do these things. It's not that you can never email, never text, never Facebook. Not, it's not, this is about legalism. But the point is, hours and hours and hours of this, you're saturated by this. It's controlling you. It's shaping you. Shaping what you want. Shaping what you like. Shaping what you think is important. And Jesus says, you're supposed to be living by the Father's perfect ways. It's a totally different way of living than this way. 
Yeah, it's even the news. I, last couple of years, I've vastly, vastly taken back how much time I spend following the news. Because you would think the news would be neutral. Yeah, it's, no, it's no problem watching the news. That's kind of important, actually, to keep on abreast of world events and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's good to follow the news. Well, it's fine to know about world events and stuff. But did you know that even watching and being, seeing too much news media also shapes you? You say, it's not shaping me. It's just telling me the news. No, no, it's shaping you. They're telling you what to think about. They are determining what you are thinking about. They are determining what you think is news. Let me share an example. 1997, August 31st, 1997. Many of you will remember. Any of you who's, you know, more than 18 years old will remember, no doubt. August 31st, 1997, Princess Diana died, right? Those of you who are old enough, uh, you know, 20 years old or whatever up, you, you remember Princess Diana dying. It was huge news. I remember where I was when I heard the news that Princess Diana had died. Uh, we were, I was in the car. My parents were driving me to the airport for my first semester at Trinity Western Island, BC. It was 5 in the morning. It was early in the morning. We heard on the radio, Princess Diana has died. It was huge news. We're just like, what? And if, if you'll remember, it was a media news frenzy for like a month, for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It was just like a whole month. It just went crazy. I mean, you would watch a news program on the TV. It'd be an hour long, and 50 minutes of it would be Princess Diana, Princess Diana, Princess Diana, people grieving over Princess Diana, people, da, 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 da. What, how did she affect your life? Princess Diana, Princess Diana, and then right at the end, you throw in a little bit of news from around the world. That was the news program. That was like that for like a month. Princess Diana, well, you say, well, that was the news. Who determined that that was the news? Was nothing else happening around the world? Tens of thousands of other people died during that, during that time. Who determined? You say, well, they're just reporting the news. No, 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 they're not just reporting the news. They're making the news. They're telling you what is news. How many of you knew that five days after Princess Diana died, someone else died too? That's right, someone knows here. Five days after Princess Diana died, another little woman died. Her name was Mother Teresa. Very few people noticed. In fact, they did, I, I was reading this last week, studies, news coverage of Princess Diana's death compared to Mother Teresa's death. Princess Diana's death, the entire world mourned for a month. The world was mourning for Princess Diana. And all respect to her, fine. I'm sure she was a nice person. But almost nobody noticed that Mother Teresa died. Almost nobody mourned for Mother Teresa. Almost nobody mourned for the other tens of thousands of people that died during that time. Why is that? Whose life, a billion years from now in heaven, whose life is bigger news? Whose life made a bigger impact? Princess Diana's or Mother Teresa's fraternity? Whose life was actual news? Whose death was actual news? But that's not what we got. We grieved about Princess Diana because the news media told us that's the news. That's what's big. And that's what I'm talking about here. The media, even if you're not watching something bad, the media is shaping your memories. It is shaping what you think of as important. It's shaping the events you look back on and say, those are the defining events of the world and those are the defining events of my life. It's shaping what you value. It's shaping what you're content with. Even if you're not looking at things that are explicitly bad, it's shaping you. The more time you spend thinking about that, the more you are living and wanting and, and, and doing that. It's huge. It's absolutely huge, and that's why I think oversaturation with the media may be one of the greatest enemies to the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle that Jesus is preaching. And again, this is not legalism. I, I still check in with the news every week. I just make sure. I know there's certain basic things. I want to know about the Christians in Iraq. I pray for them. I pray for them. My heart goes out to them. I know basic things. I know what's going on in Israel. I know basic things. I make sure I just keep, I just know, kind of know the big events, but I don't want to be formed. I don't want them to tell me what I have to think about. I don't want them to tell me what is news. And then you go into all this social media and stuff. They're doing research now. More and more people are depressed. The more time they spend on Facebook and sites like that. Again, is it bad to have stuff on Facebook? I'm going to post the weekly challenge on Facebook immediately after this message. It's not about legalism. But people are on Facebook more and more and more. It's making them feel more connected. It's making them feel more depressed. Because what it turns into is it's just a big comparing thing. Look who has this. Look who did this. Look at this. Look at this. You start to feel terrible. 
There's no connection of person to person. It's all through media. It's actually just depressing. Oversaturation with the media. Jesus says, I want you to live by the Father's perfect ways. You cannot live by these perfect ways when your life is oversaturated with the world's ways. So you say, well, what is the, the antidote? Well, the antidote, Psalm 1. Lots of, you can look at lots of scriptures, but Psalm 1 has the antidote. Famous passage of scripture says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I just want to stop there for just a moment. A lot of Christians read this verse and they go, oh, I'm a blessed man. I'm a blessed woman. Because they look at that verse and they go, they do a quick inventory of the people they know in their life. I don't, I'm not, I'm not taking counsel from wicked people. And I'm not hanging out with scoffers and mockers. Oh, good. But they neglect to look at their media intake. You say, I don't hang out with people who give me wicked counsel. And yet you'll read the blogs and the articles and watch this and this and that and the opinions and taking the opinions and the advice of people who hate God and are opposed to his values. You might not have sat down with them in person, but you filled your mind with their stuff all week long. How is that not standing in the counsel of the wicked? I don't sit in the seat of scoffers and mockers, but you'll watch their YouTube clips and television shows, the comedians and the rebellious people who tear down authority figures, who tear down God's values, who hate absolute truth, who hate Jesus. You'll laugh at all their jokes, and you'll laugh at their rebellion. How is that not sitting in the seat of scoffers? David says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. You're not filling your mind with the counsel of the wicked. You're not filling your your entertainment. You're not filling your heart with the scoffing and mocking of the scoffers. But instead, verse 2, but instead, but his delight, rather than filling his mind with the counsel of the wicked, rather than filling his heart with the scoffing and mocking of the scoffers, he says, but instead, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Day and night, he meditates on the law of God. Day and night. He's not talking here about you have to read your Bible all day long, you can never stop praying, you can't go to work. What he's talking about is what you saturate your mind with. Day and night. As opposed to saturating your mind with the counsel and opinions and values of the wicked and the scoffers, as opposed to that, your mind is saturated day after day with the law of God and the good thing of God. Live his perfect ways. And I say, oh, you know, I don't want to be, I'm one of those people, I just don't want to be legalistic about my devotions. Amen. Please, never do your devotions out of legalism. Do it out of relationship. But you want to know something I've, I've noticed? Some of the people who are biggest against not being legalistic about daily time with God are incredibly legalistic about making sure they never miss a single day of media. Or you just run off to work and you put in your 30 seconds of your daily bread. Whoo, I did my devotions. God's happy with me. And now you turn on the media for the next 15 hours. Blessed is the man, day and night, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. His mind is saturated with the Father's ways. That's the only way to live by the Father's ways, is to have his thoughts and his values shaping you rather than the world and the world's game shaping you and your values. And then here's the blessing. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I wonder, do we, do we actually believe that? I mean, of course, we're all Christians. <laughs> do you believe the Bible? Oh, of course I do, Yeah. Is the Bible true? Everything in the Bible is true. Okay, is Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3 true? Definitely it's true. We'd all agree it's the Bible. It it has to be true. If you actually believe this, you'll do something about it. If you actually believe this, that's what belief is. If you actually believe that the person who lives this way prospers while the person who doesn't does not, you will live by it. What is your mind saturated with? 
Some of us wonder why God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. Why can't I seem to feel God's love? Why can't I hear God's direction for my life? Some of us are wondering even a deeper question. Why don't I want to do what is right? You ever wonder that? Like some of you, you don't even want to do right. You want materialism. And you, you, you don't want to want it, but you do want it. You want the world. You don't want the things of God. And you wonder why. Why can't I hear him? Why can't I love him? Why can't I stop loving the things of the world? One of the biggest reasons why you can't on all of those questions is because your mind is filled with the world. And as long as it is filled with the ways of the world and the values of the world, how can you hear God's voice? Of course you want that stuff because your mind is filled with it. You can't know the pleasures of knowing Jesus because your mind isn't filled with Jesus. Now Jesus isn't asking us to do the impossible either. I'm going to give you a weekly challenge here and I think there's a lot of hope in this. There is hope. People say, well, I could never do that. I'm addicted. It's my life and it's, we can't even imagine a life apart. Jesus isn't asking you to throw the whole thing out. He's asking you, Psalm 1, 1 to 3, he's asking you, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your Father is perfect. Turn to His ways. Turn to Him. He'll help you step by step. This is not impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. You know, verses come to my mind right now. The rich man comes to Jesus. Jesus says, you want to follow me? And uh, the guy says, yeah. Obey the commands. He says, yeah. I'm doing those. Jesus says, now give up everything and follow me. And the rich man goes away sad. We all read that parable and go, ha, ha, we're not rich. Right? And the disciples say, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, it is tough to get saved if you're rich because you've got to give something up that you want real bad. But he says, with God, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. What if we change that parable around and someone from modern day Canada would be before Jesus today and say, I want to follow you. First of all, obey the commands. Okay, I'm doing that. I'm all over that. Next thing is, I want you to leave the ways of the culture and the media behind and I want you to turn your mind to me. How many would turn around on that one? And the disciples would look around and they would see every Christian, 99.9% of them spending all their time with media and they would say, then who can be saved? And Jesus would still have hope and he would say, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. He's not just calling rich people to walk away from their money. He's calling us to walk away from an oversaturation of the culture to follow him and be devoted to him and be set apart. Be holy as I am holy. And it might look impossible to us because that's just what our culture does. Jesus isn't asking us to do what our culture does. He isn't asking us to do what's easy. He's asking us to devote ourselves to him. So for my challenge this week, this is what I'm going to challenge you. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. You don't need to write it down. We're going to put it on Facebook. This is not about legalism. We're going to email it out. So you can get it on your email. It's not about legalism. It's about oversaturation. What is your, where is your mind saturated? But I would challenge each of you this week to take an honest inventory of your media intake this week for yourself and for your family. How much time each day and week are you on social media, on the internet, with TV, movies, video games, and the news? The first step is just to courageously take stock. Many people don't even want to know. Many of you probably don't even want to count. Some of you will be shocked. Some of you don't want to be shocked. But the first step to obeying Jesus is just, he says, count the cost. Before you decide to follow me, count the cost. What does that look like for you? Take time this week in your devotions and actually just mark it down. Compare this to the amount of time you're spending connecting to each other as a family and, and to God. Your kids are watching TV every day maybe, but how much, when's the last time you actually just connected? You connect every day with them as a family? Talk about what's going on in their hearts? Talk about God? How much time in a word and in prayer? How much time talking about the things of God together? And after you've worked through that inventory, the next thing I would challenge you to do this week is seek the Lord about putting your media intake on a budget. Just seek the Lord about that. Take an inventory and then say, Lord, I'm coming to you. He can help you. No, nothing is impossible with God. He will walk you through this and you will find more joy in him than you ever found in the media. And again, it's not that you're getting rid of absolutely everything. It's that you're turning to him and saying, Lord, I'm going to make you Lord of this area of my life too. 
What media stuff do I need to cut out entirely? What media stuff do I just need to cut back on? How much time each day and week am I going to allow myself and my kids to be with media? And then when you're done that, I want you to ask Jesus this. What good deeds? What good deeds are you calling to me to now that I'm cutting back on media? People are so busy nowadays. I always hear this, busy, 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 busy. You start to poke into people's lives. You find out, I thought you were busy. You're spending so much time with this, 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 and this. You're busy because you're so much time social media, so much time watching TV. You will never miss your favorite show, but your grandmother in the old folks' home you haven't seen for six months. Is that the Father's perfect ways? Is that the Father's higher ways? We ignore the people in our lives. Maybe it's time to turn off that favorite show. Yeah, but it's my favorite. And go out and talk to the neighbors. And go and visit someone in the hospital from your cell or from your family. What good deeds, Jesus, are you calling me to as I cut back on this and make it to a place where it's, a God, it's in a godly place? What good deeds of love and justice are you calling me to? Let's pray. Lord, I want you to speak to us. First of all, with some of us, this call, the call of what you're calling us to here seems impossible, but actually with you, all things are possible. All things are possible with you. There's hope in this. Our culture is trying to swamp us with its values through media. But Lord Jesus, you are stronger than the culture, and if we will give ourselves to you, you will walk us step by step and help us to walk in righteousness and godliness. Now, Lord, I pray that you would give, speak to each person. I want to just, I'm going to pause for a moment, and I pray that you would speak a word of hope into every person here this morning. Some people might feel overwhelmed, like, I can't attain to that. He's not asking you to do everything in one day or one week. He's only asking you to take one small step this week. That's all he's asking you to do. Write down whatever he puts in your heart right now. Lord Jesus, I pray that every person in this auditorium right now, that you would speak a word of encouragement this morning. What are you calling them to? What are you asking them to do? Will you be with them? Just write down whatever, he, whatever thought he puts in your heart right now. Just mark it down. Be holy as you are holy. We want to come up. We want to be set apart. Here at this church, Jesus, we want to be set apart to you. Set apart from the world's game. We want to play your game. We want to be totally devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.